This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Pete McBride. Pete is a National Geographic photographer, filmmaker, and writer who tells untold stories from some of the world's wildest places. Most recently, Pete and his friend, author Kevin Fedarko, hiked the entire 800-mile length of the Grand Canyon, documenting the journey for his forthcoming book, Grand Canyon Between River and Rim. The book is an amazing combination of breathtaking photography, adventure travelogue, and an examination of some of the conservation challenges facing the legendary National Park. Given the fact that more people have stood on the moon than hiked the length of the Grand Canyon, it's no surprise that this book is a must-read. Growing up in Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley, Pete spent his childhood skiing, playing hockey, and working on his family's ranch. After college back east, he cut his teeth in journalism at the High Country News, where he discovered his proclivity for photography. From there, he set out on a series of adventures, camera in hand, and thanks to a great deal of hard work and hustle, he was eventually able to sell his first story to National Geographic. After traveling the world as a photojournalist and having some close calls in Somalia and on Mount Everest, Pete decided to focus his efforts on his backyard river, the Colorado River. Pete seems to have found his true calling in this iconic waterway. He's combined his artistic eye, journalistic perspective, and pursuit of adventure to become one of the Colorado River's greatest advocates. Pete and I met up in Aspen, Colorado, just before he was heading out to the airport to catch a flight. Even though our time was limited, we managed to cover a wide range of fun topics. We dug into the details of his Grand Canyon hike, and Pete tells a scary story of coming way too close to death early in the trip. We talk about his relationship with Kevin Fedarko and how their differing personalities complement each other so well on hardcore adventures. Pete talks about his career as a photographer and how he sees his strong work ethic as the key to his success. Pete also gives a great overview of the challenges facing the Colorado River, and he offers some solid book recommendations for those looking to learn more about water in the West. Hopefully I'll get Pete back on the podcast for a part two at some point in the future, because as you'll hear, there's still plenty more to discuss. But I really appreciate him taking the time to chat during such a busy time. Hope you enjoy. that I normally start out these interviews is I ask people when you meet somebody for the first time and like at a party and they say, what do you do? How do you answer that? What do I do? I do. Um, I don't know what the hell I do to be honest, but I try to tell stories, uh, and in untold stories in, um, unusual ways, usually with, with a visual media. And, um, I point my lenses on, try to point it in places that people don't. And I sometimes try to incorporate, challenging elements of adventure to tell that story. Yeah. I think that's a, quite an understatement, but, and we can, we can dig into <laughs> it. Um, so I think the easiest way to dig into that is just your most recent adventure. Um, the, the, the 800 miles through the grand Canyon, which is, I just can't even get my head around doing that. So can you just talk a little bit about that project? Um, how it came to be, what, what you did. And then I want to ask you some more specific questions about it. Uh, I, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'll back up just a tiny bit yeah, because it'll lead to how I ended up doing something that I still can't get my head around either. 
But um, I spent um, a long time as a journalist, and I did a decided to do a project that I felt was closer to my heart and mm-hmm. closer to home, a personal project. And I followed the length of my what I call my backyard river, which is literally about 200 yards from where we're speaking right now. Yep, yep. And and I ended up following it to the end and was shocked and alarmed to learn that it's a dead river. We've totally turned it into a plumbing system and have too many straws in it. Mm-hmm. Most loved and litigated body of water probably in the world. And after that project, I was invited to the Grand Canyon to give a talk about the architect of the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. And when I did the river project, I presumed that the national parks were the shiny pearls on the necklace of the river, so to speak. They were the ones that didn't have any challenges per se. They were protected. They were, everything was hunky-dory there. It was downstream where the river runs dry. That's where the problems were. And to my surprise, after giving a talk about the, the river, I was invited by some a park ranger to go down into the canyon. And I started hearing all these story, stories about, how have you heard this? Have you heard that? Uh, we got a lot of development happening on basically all sides of this national park, our, our most iconic national park. Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, I'd been reading uh, this book um, called The Man Who Walks Through Time, and it was about the guy who first walked a chunk of what is now Grand Canyon National Park. I started asking some questions, and I got the crazy idea that maybe maybe I should reenact this walk that was done in 1960. And um, What year was all this? It was about 2014. Okay. And um, and from there, I kind of casually pitched it in a conversation to the director of photography at National Geographic, and I had hardly left the building an hour later when I heard other executives at NatGeo saying, yeah, here you're going to walk the Grand Canyon. I was like, huh? <laughs> So sometimes when you get an idea, it sort of creates a life of its own. So anyway, the concept was... Um, the Grand Canyon, just so for your listeners get a concept of this thing, it's it's 6,000 feet deep. Uh, you could fit five Empire State Buildings stacked inside of it. Wow. Uh, if you were to take the main highway, the only highway through the canyon, it's 277 miles long. But if you decide to walk it, there's no trails, predominantly no trails. There's some ancient um, Puebloan trails. There's a few hiking trails, but nothing goes from east to west. And if you do this journey on foot, it gets you into this wilderness area that few people see, um, that between river and rim land, that is really remarkably beautiful um, and remarkably challenging. But because you have to walk around all these tributaries that fracture and break the landscape and flow into the Colorado River, you end up walking more like 750, 800 miles. And that's how it becomes such a long trip. And... So the goal was to do that as a way to shine a lens, literally, on our most iconic national park. Not our most visited, but definitely pretty much everyone on the planet knows the Grand Canyon. Um, and look at its beauty, but also what's what's potentially poised to change it. And that's, you know, development, uh, mining, mm-hmm. public wanting to check it off their bucket list without having to sweat or get dirty, that yep. concept. And so your partner in crime was Kevin Fedarko, and his book continues to come up on this podcast. I always ask people what their favorite book about the West is, and over and over and over his book comes up. And so can you talk a little bit about your partnership with him, how that came to be? And from my understanding, I don't know Kevin, but it seems like you guys have 
personalities that may not be exactly alike, but they complement each other really well. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Kevin uh, sometimes gets called Eeyore, and I get <laughs> called Tigger. So <laughs> if you want to put it in Winnie Pooh terms, that's, uh, that's, where, that's where we fall. I, I get it. Maybe I, I, there may be some accuracy there. Um, Kevin's a really strong Eeyore, though I will admit he won't admit it. He's mentally tough and physically tough, um, and he portrays himself as a, uh, a nerdy writer who never leaves the desk and is um, unfit and unable to do physical things, which, um, since he made the entire journey with me, he's proven himself otherwise. Yeah, I'd But say. I knew that that was the case before this, and I went to Kevin because, um, first, he's a friend, uh, even though we're somewhat completely different. He's the introvert. I'm more of an intro- extrovert. Um, but because I admire his writing, I love his book, The Emerald Mile, as well. Um, I helped him on some of the PR for it nice. with the video. But more importantly, we had worked together for nearly a decade. Um, we both have the um, the honor of saying we've been deported from Djibouti in Africa. Nice. Djibouti from Djibouti. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, Djibouti is the northern section of Somalia. Not the most friendly place around. We went to do a story on on type of narcotic trade and after a little while the government didn't like us and got us threw us out us NBC involved marines the whole deal is scary that's a whole different podcast we'll do part that's, two for that's that. that's yeah. a different one but we've worked there we've worked on mount everest together where we got nearly swept off the mountain in an avalanche and uh, we've had a couple other just completely just colossal screw-ups journalistically they weren't screw-ups i just we went in to do stories that we thought would be one thing and they ended up being something completely different yeah we went to northern canada to follow the um, largest migration of caribou in north america we didn't find one caribou wow so it gives you an example of some of the things that kind of went pear-shaped with us but but you're still buddies. But it forged a a forged a friendship and i think a professional partnership that i knew that we could get into something and, and um, we could get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, um, you know, I, Kevin was writing a book um, at the time when we were getting prepared and I said, Hey, don't worry about it. I know you're tough. We'll figure it out. You don't need to train for this that hard. I might've, I might've undersold (laughs) or made it sound like it'd be an easy jaunt. And that was my own uh, hubris, I guess. I thought the Grand Canyon wouldn't be that hard. You know, how hard could it be? It was my, my attitude and uh, it took us just five days of walking through marble canyon before we had to leave um i almost had to get evac'd what um, happened i got extremely sick uh-huh. i got a uh, hyponatremia which is the opposite of dehydration water. yeah yeah basically i was it was just really it was too i didn't get enough salt, salt yeah it was 105 degrees at night 112 in the day <sighs> that's my worst nightmare man and i just don't do well there and um i brought in too much gear and uh, you know, I just wasn't prepared for what it's like to hike without a trail. Yeah. So there's more people that have stood on the surface of the moon than have hiked continuously through the Grand Canyon. Well, I think it's worth noting that, I mean, like if, if I were talking about that was going to be hard, it'd be one thing. But given your experience all over the world and the adventures you've been on, when you say it's that hard, that's a different level. I mean, I think people need to understand that. And um, so you mentioned how some of these, you and Kevin's adventures and assignments over the years turned out to be different than what you thought. What was the biggest surprise 
during your during this trip of the Grand Canyon? Something that you just, I mean, obviously you weren't expecting to not, you know, have to leave after five days, but was there, is there any overarching thing that well, you're like, I mean, that just to go back to that quickly. The first surprise was how physically hard it was. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate to have uh, adventures around the world that some have been physically challenging. I, I'd put this on an order of 10 magnitude higher. Really? And, um, part of that is just the remoteness and the, the psychological challenge too, of knowing that you're every time you leave water, um, you're walking away from water. Yeah. No guarantee you're walking towards water. And so this weighs on you psychologically that, because you're not going to live more than 24 hours if you don't find a water source. It just, it's desert country and it's, and it happens all the time. I mean, to the tourists, they get down there and they underestimate it. And sure. They want to do a rim to rim trail run and they don't bring enough salt and electrolytes. They, they run out of water and they get delirious. They wander off and they find them dead. Tragically, these are, you know, triathletes. Sure. So that was the first real lesson. It was like getting just a total smackdown of humility. Mm-hmm. I think um, the canyon teaches humility better than any landscape on the planet, perhaps, <laughs> which is a good thing. It I is. I think we I'll all need, a, especially Americans, we need a dose of, of humble pie yes. quite often. Um, and the... So that was the first thing. Once we figured our game out, which required us um, asking for a tremendous amount of help from the local community, which they gratefully um, offered to us and helped us out. They kind of like babysat us through the program for a little bit, Nice, um, which is a real lesson on just the community around this amazing landscape. Um, and after that, I think the real thing, the surprises and lessons from it were... Um, there's three that Kevin and I talk about. Uh, first one was the we often define this place in in light and contour and landscape and shape and form, and really it's it's to me the thing that stuck in my mind the most is its silence. Mm. I've never encountered a level of silence as profound as I call it liquid silence. Um, so quiet, my microphones didn't work. They would they would get staticky because they were calibrated to a silence that's noisier than that in the Grand Canyon. Wow. Um, second one was the night sky. Uh, we hear about the night sky, but you don't realize just how crystal clear and amazing it is when you're until you're in the Grand Canyon. When you're in a place that's not shrouded with with lights, light pollution. So it's really this the river of stars that mirrors the the river below that carved the place that mm-hmm. creates this really, really powerful dynamic. And then the last one is that there's, um, uh, you think it's the place is empty. And then when you walk through it and spend a lot of time there, you realize that you're surrounded by artifacts from people that have come before you. Mm-hmm. Um, you find their pot shards, you find where they stored food, you find their art in very secret places that not many people know about. Some art dating back to, 4,000 years, some people say longer. Amazing polychrome paintings of figure, alien-like figures kind of embracing, and of course, wildlife and huge figures and overhangs. How they've been there that long is remarkable. And you're like, where did all these people go? Uh, You start to think, and then you realize that they haven't gone anywhere. They surround Grand Canyon National Park. There's 11 Native American tribes that that live and exist around the park and they're they're involved on all fronts of the development on both sides 
for and against and sure. and that their voice has to be integrated into the conversation of our national parks because initially we were created this as this hey let's have a national park oh nobody ever lived here before when in fact they did and they were pushed out and so i think that was a real i knew that but it was it was became much more pronounced and profound after spending that much time there this may be a stupid question, but the the people that lived down there 4,000 years ago, was there enough, there obviously must have been enough game down there for them to subsist down that deep? I mean, they wouldn't have been living there otherwise, I guess. Well, it raises the question, was it a different climate at that point? Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, but they would they would even farm down there near the river, um, and the river was undammed at that point, so the river would run big and heavy and, and be warm. Um, and they could they could live on the banks and farm it um, in certain months, and then in the super hot months, mm-hmm. uh, they would go up into the highlands. So they would take advantage of that six thousand foot vertical range that the Grand Canyon offers. And I think so. The answer is yes. They they had plenty to live off. Um, there's a remarkable number of species and biodiversity that live in Grand Canyon. We often don't think of it as such, but it's one of the has the greatest range of biodiversity in in all our national parks does it really yeah I didn't so know it's that. the equivalent of of being going from northern mexico to southern canada all stacked into the canyon wow and there's a good example is there's species of birds that instead of migrating east or west during certain seasons they just change rock layers got it they just go down a few layers and say hey it's nice down here I never heard of that. And when it gets too hot, they're like, hey, we'll just go up a couple layers. <laughs> so that's what the ancient Puebloans were doing, too. Uh-huh. It makes perfect sense. And yeah. that's why maybe there was some crazy ancient Puebloan that walked the canyon east to west, but it w- it's not that logical. Sure. You would go from the river maybe to the other side and back. You'd do a rim to rim, but you wouldn't go full length the of it. Length. Um, so how long did the, the whole trip take, said and done, when, I mean, to, to do the, the entire length? What was the time frame there? So we chose to do it um, purposefully over, over a course of a year to see the seasons. I wanted to photograph it. I was doing it for National Geographic, so I wanted to get some diversity and imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did it over the course of eight trips, um, okay. roughly walking about 15 miles a day. 13 to 15 miles off a day trail off trail some days 20 25 how long did that take you basically get up and start walking about 7 30 in the morning and you you set up camp at sometimes 6 30 at night and hopefully you're finding water as you go and um and then you've timed it out that distance so i had friends go down the river on a river trip and leave food caches and okay. plastic buckets yeah with big markered notes, don't take this life or death kind of thing. Nice. And we we didn't always match our time frame. That was always stressful too. So we'd fall off our our hiking schedule, and then you'd be, realize that you had a day of food with you, and you were three days away from your food cache. So lost a lot of weight, lost thirty five pounds or something. What's <laughs> um, that happens too, just from walking that far? But um, and it was the fun thing though was I I got it down to I. I just brought one camera, one lens. Did you really? Yeah. What camera? I brought just one of these little Sony's mirrorless cameras, one of their uh-huh. um, I've heard great systems. things about yeah. those. And I brought it for their weight, but they also are great with low light. Okay. And that, as a photographer, that's the last thing you want to do is bring one camera into a place that likes to eat electronics. The fine-grained sand of the Grand Canyon just chews up electronics. But I learned the hard way of nearly killing myself in the beginning that weight kills. Yeah. You just can't carry too, a lot of weight. So, 
What was the, if you had to pick one, the scariest thing that ever happened when you were there? Um, was there one experience that stuck out? The first five days, thankfully, we were following some really experienced guys. So I wasn't as scary because I knew they they were keeping an eye to a degree. But this, when I started getting sick with hyponatremia, I was starting to lose consciousness and vomiting water. And I started thinking, ooh, this, this isn't going to go so well, perhaps. That's serious business, man. I, that's a lot more serious than dehydration by multiple, multiple factors. Yeah. I mean, it'll kill you pretty quick. Yeah, you go, you basically go unconscious, slip into a coma and die. And it happens in a matter of hours. And I got near the unconscious stage. And how did you get out of that? I mean, how did you get to the point where you could get out? One of the guys uh, with me realized he, he had forgotten. We started diagnosing the situation and we were, we have a satellite texting device is the only way you can communicate out of the Canyon when it doesn't always work. But a doctor was texting in uh, Tom Myers. He's a great doctor in the Grand Canyon area. And he's like, I'm pretty sure he's got hyponatremia. Get him some salt. And this guy, Rich Rudeau, we're, who's also actually through hiked the entire length, we were like the tin can on his you know, locomotive because mm-hmm. he's really experienced. And we were slowing him down. I felt terrible. But he, he suddenly realized, he was like, oh, I got soy sauce. So he handed me these two mm-hmm. packs of soy sauce. Like he was savoring them for like the special meal I had. Sure, sure. But I drank two bags of soy sauce immediately. And immediately like my eyes started to like come back and focus isn't that amazing it was remarkable but i was i was messed up for a week after that i hiked out at like snail pace and uh, next day in flagstaff i spent four hours looking for my cell phone and realized i've been holding it in my hand for four hours <laughs> gives you a little idea how yeah. your brain gets a little yeah those cooked. electrolytes they keep your brain firing you yeah. know um so many more questions I could ask, but I know we're, we can't sit here and talk all day. But let's talk about your new book that's coming out in September. The, if you could call that a book, I might call that like a foundation of a house. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool to see. It's, uh, it's, um, it's a big coffee table book. I don't want to drop that on my four-month-old daughter, I have to tell you that. No, hopefully <laughs> the weight of it doesn't scare people away. It's, I think it's actually priced <laughs> really well, considering how big and heavy no, that's it is. A gr- that is a, that's a book you keep forever. I'm, we're looking at a, the only copy that is currently in Colorado right now. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. 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 Um, well, the great fun is that um, it's the photographic journey um, of the hike. So you, you see the Grand Canyon through, um, I guess, through my lens, but really through a way that no other photographer's ever done it because we were the first ones to get permitted. Maybe somebody's done it without a permit, but I don't know of them. Mm-hmm. But I really worked hard on it. It was it was all done for a National Geographic magazine assignment. So um, there's a lot of effort put into the imagery, and it's a combination of landscape and fine art and adventure um, woven together. And then uh, I wrote a bunch of essays, but... Um, I brought in the big heavy hitter writers. So Kevin Fedarko um, was very generous, and he wrote the introduction for me, uh, which was great. And then thanks to Kevin's um, connection to Hampton Sides, who I've now since met, um, he got convinced Hampton to write the prologue, which is also remarkable. So I feel really honored and privileged to team up with these two great wordsmiths. And then um, the company's Rizzoli, and they do remarkable, remarkable job on printing books. They have the the print quality actually blew my mind, and I've come from a very, you know, uh, um, your standard is National standard of yeah. Nat Geo. So that's yeah. Well, it when does it come out? September September twenty fifth. Okay, I'll uh, have links. Is it pre order now? 
pre-order now on Amazon. Okay, I'll have links to that so people can can get it because it's the kind of thing you'd want to have out on your on your coffee table in your house. Yeah, and the other cool thing is I think the book will be interesting for years to come, but um, in the February of 2019 is the centennial of Grand Canyon National Park. Oh, wow. Okay. Not the canyon, of course. Hard to even figure out the exact date of that thing. Yeah. It's a, a date of the park, and the whole concept of the project is to look at our park and how are we... How are we handing these public lands, these these national parks, off from one generation to the next? Are we actually leaving them as they are, as Teddy Roosevelt said we should back in the early 1900s? Or are we subtly tweaking them and changing them to their becoming a place that isn't the same? So the, the idea of the walk really was to see if we could leave a line of footprints through the place, not to conquer it, but just to understand it and experience it as it is today and then hope that somebody maybe my nephew could do the same walk or something like it in 20 years or would it be a different place for instance if they build what's been proposed um, a tram down into the little colorado confluence i was going to ask you about that Ten thousand people a day it'll be a different place if they continue the growth of helicopter flights, there's now the busiest heliport in the world on the western side of Grand Canyon, which is driving you know, the development models on the eastern side like a tram um, up to 400, even more flights a day. If, if that continues to grow, what's going to happen to this place of silence and, and unfettered night sky and the places that you can't find anywhere else? Is, and in, in my opinion, it's raising the question how do we see these parks? Are they places of amusement or are they places that are, we just don't touch and we, we don't completely ignore. We, we just don't change. We leave them as a way to study and understand and learn and get away from our screens, connect back to the old fashioned analog world that, that we have humans have known for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where I think that's where I was even myself personally as one who loves the outdoors. And I was just amazed at how this place even taught me how, what real silence is, what, what it's like to listen to the landscape you're amongst to try to find where to get water and shelter and things like that. I think it's just so cool that you went to a place that, you know, everybody knows it's a you know, tourist Mecca and their commercial rafting trips going down it, you know, every time you look out there, I've, I've been on one of those. And yet you were able to go into these deep corners that, I mean, nobody, very, 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 very few people, like you said, less people have been on the moon have been to these spots in this place that's just so iconically American. Um, I think that's cool. And I think the fact that you are such a skilled photographer and you can get those images out to people so they know it's more than the, the ice cream stand at the top of the rim, you know, people who are interested. So I think it's a, I think you're doing a real service and um, I'm excited to, to, to get my copy of that book. Um, I want to, I want to talk about you personally for a minute because you've obviously got this really cool life. You're on these adventures all the time. You figured out how to make a living doing what, you know, most people would consider the ultimate dream job. So you grew up here, Roaring Fork Valley. What was your first? Did you grow up just outdoor adventure all the time as a kid? Not, not really. We, I mean, I, we just grew up um, doing things like skiing, skiing, yeah. racing, playing ice hockey, playing on on the ponds. My school had frozen ponds. We'd play hockey on. Yep. I think it just was. You spent a lot of times outside, and um, I grew up on a 
a small ranch. My father had a business, so it was more of a hobby, but we took it seriously. We raised cattle, and I took care of orphan calves growing up and knew how to irrigate and ride a horse. Not very well. Yeah. But I did a lot of things that just kept me outside, and I think it just made me uh, appreciate it and uh, respect it and like doing it more of it, you know, camping and so forth. And I think a lot of the schools in this part of Colorado take kids on outdoor ed programs three times a year. We did sleep in a snow cave. Oh, wow. So I'm grateful that those programs exist, and I can't emphasize how important I think they are because they they shape people to do what they do in certain ways. And so you, when you got out of high school, what did you do? Where did you go? Uh, I went to college back east. Okay. Uh, I went to Dartmouth College, got banged up trying to play on the hockey team. Nice. Um, ski raced for them, which was fun. Um, skiing in frozen frozen rainstorms and lightning on the chairlift. That's <laughs> <It was> memorable. <laughs> um, but then uh, I went and worked for High Country News as an intern. Oh, wrote, did you really? Yeah, I wrote a thesis about public land um, grazing. At college, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I was um, I was a big believer that that ranchers and environmentalists are more on the same side than they realize, and um, so I wrote a big thesis on grazing, and it was back in '93 when it was cow free, and '93 was the slogan, and people were beating up on ranchers so much they were kind of losing sight that if you lose the ranch, you're going to lose the open space, and eventually that becomes housing and condos, particularly in the Rocky Mountain West around Colorado. Yep. And um, that's not everywhere, but that's in certain areas. And so it, I think um, I was trying to bridge the gap and create conversation there. And, and the place that was the most helpful for me in researching it was High Country News. So I went and worked for Ed and Betsy Marston as an intern. That's and, legendary, man. Yeah, and quickly learned that um, I sucked as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Betsy would make me rewrite things nine times. And... Um, Boot camp, man. Yeah, it was full boot camp. And then I went and did one little essay on branding, spring branding, um, and came back with some photographs. I figured I'd take some pictures. Um, I didn't hardly know how to operate a camera, but um, I'd done a lot of art and drawing in college as well. And um, came back, and they were all complimenting me on what a great story I did. And I was like, what? That's not, that doesn't make sense. And they all saw the photos, and they liked the photos. They couldn't give a rat's ass about the words. Yeah. So that was the first time a light bulb ever went off in my head about being a photographer. So from there, how, how did you, how did you take it from being identified as a talented photographer to being able to work for Nat Geo? Well, I did a whole bunch of projects. Um, I did wrote for them for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, then, um, I went and worked for the 10th mountain hut division, built a hut with my brother Oh, nice! and actually did a story on that, photographed it and wrote it and started selling these stories for like the Denver post. And, and then, um, actually I couldn't get away from ski racing. So I went and coached the university of Colorado, uh, nice. for a year. So chased the gates a little more, but then wrote about it as well and started spinning my personal experiences into journalism and then met some aviation fanatics, told them I wanted to partner that with them on a project just kind of lied that i was a accomplished photojournalist I, I wasn't but um they i ended up volunteering for them for years and it was this crazy story they wanted to do and they were able to get some sponsorship and they've reenacted the first aviation journey through africa in a 1920 cloth covered open cockpit twin engine uh, biplane called a vickers vimy okay crazy adventure and and i was able to kind of secure my seat on it by helping and volunteering and fundraising with them and that geo said no probably to my benefit because they wouldn't have 
let me do it. Uh-huh. We went and did it with little, limited sponsorship money. Uh, plane flies 65 miles an hour, falls out of the sky at 63 miles an hour. Uh, gives you a real <laughs> respect for modern aviation. Yeah. And uh, it was cold, no no bathroom on that thing. Flights were 10 hours long. But we flew from London to Cape Town, um, reenacting what guys did in 1920. It took them 43 days in an air race in 1920. It took us 58 in wow. 1999. But I was able to sell that story, shoot and write it for National Geographic. It got me through the door and then led to a, you know a career of doing photojournalism, initially adventure stories, and then... After a decade of that running around and getting kicked out of countries with Kevin and some other things, I decided I should do something maybe a little closer to home, maybe a little less risky. And that's where the concept of following the Colorado River came from, which led me on back to adventure in the Grand Canyon. So you're obviously a talented artist, um, how mu- but I feel like there are a lot of talented artists. And how much of your success, would you say, is talent and how much of it is your ability to work your ass off? And hustle. I would say that on a talent spectrum, I'm very low. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many more talented photographers, writers, filmmakers. I'm just a bullheaded, put my nose to the grindstone and just work, 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 and just keep Have trying. you always been like that your whole life? I think probably, pretty yeah. much. I mean, I can, I can catch luge like no other and watch a movie <laughs> when time allows, but... <laughs> um, no, I think I just my my folks or my brother has a really strong work ethic, and my sister, and and so we I think we just picked it up somehow, and um, I just worked really hard at it and stick at it, and I'd say that's definitely what's what's led to where I am today, far more than me being gifted with a camera. Yeah. Half the time, I hardly know how to operate the things. To be honest, I love hearing that, man. <laughs> I mean, that's you know that's the common theme with a lot of these really successful people I talk to, like our mutual friend Duke Beardsley. You know. He, I think a lot of people think, oh, artist, you kind of paint when you're inspired. I mean, that guy's in there at four in the morning, cranking it out. And you know, he's a laid back, nice guy, but he, he busts his ass. And it, it doesn't come, it's not going to come easy. Everybody wants that job. You know? Yeah. Well, Duke is also talented. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. He's super talented, but he's, I mean, he's perfected that talent through busting he, his he ass. He works his hiney off so hard. I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have known Duke my whole life, and we used to draw together when I was a little kid. Oh, really? And and that's where I quickly learned at about age nine that I was not going to be <laughs> an, an artist on his yeah. level. Yeah. I would draw stick figures, and he would draw perfect horses. So um, it's been a great... It's He's actually interesting you bring him up because he's... Um, uh, it's great to have, and when you're in the creative world, it's hard, you sometimes feel like you're kind of treading water out alone in the middle of the ocean. And so it's great to find somebody to talk to and, mm-hmm. and commiserate about the challenges of it, getting yourself up and finding motivation and inspiration all the time to do things. And, and Duke has been that person for me. So he's, um, you know, we, we hang out and we're, we're close friends and yeah, he's a he's a great dude. Um, his whole family, you know, I know his brother as well, and they're just great folks. This isn't about the American West, but it's something I'm interested in. I know that you, I, I read somewhere that you love Central America and that you also love surfing, right? Mm-hmm. How did you, for, for a Colorado guy, how did you get into surfing so much? Because surfing, even though I live here, is my favorite thing in the world. I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> me too. It makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, I guess there are waves on the river in a few spots. Yeah. I think I saw you surfing behind a boat the other day on your Yeah, Instagram. I cheated. I was doing a little redneck surfing. Nice. 
Uh, I um, my I have a grandfather on my mom's side who who raised coffee in Guatemala. And oh, really? So um, we have a Latin gene, a lurking Latin gene that kind of floats through our family a little bit, and might have come out a little stronger than me. So I've um, I did a term abroad in college in Mexico, and I've traveled a lot in Latin America. Did a lot of journalism down there and stories, and and um, picked up surfing along the way and. I've tried cold water surfing up in the north here, and I'm terrible at it, and I yeah. suck, and I seem to be better at it in the warm water. So I don't like that wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Maybe inhibiting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great sport, and you know you can combine it with some adventure, uh, and especially in Central America, it's just enough adventure where you feel like you're, or at least for me, it's different for you, but I feel like I'm being adventurous. But you, know, you never really in all that much danger. You don't have to bribe a cop here to here or there, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's good adventure light for a guy like me. No, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I think just getting out of the water can be enough adventure. It really is. Cause I'm not that good. I'm not that good either. Yeah. And I think it, you see some of these people who start surfing when they're five or six years old and they, uh, you know, there's no way to compete with that. It's like skiing in a way. Yeah. Um, so it, when you're thinking about more photography, are there any photographers that you really admire, either your contemporaries that you've come up with through National Geographic or um, any historical photographers, guys that guys or gals that you look at and you think, that's, you know, I really admire that guy's work or that gal's work, and that's, uh, I, I want to be like that. Is there anybody for you? Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, whole slurry of them that are colleagues at National Geographic. And uh, interestingly, the social media game, as much of a headache as it can be, I get to see what they're up to. And I and I admire that because I can see what my my colleagues and friends are doing. And it helps push you and be like, oh, wow, look, they're doing something different. I should do yep. something different. Um, there's um, a Brazilian photographer, older, uh, lives in, I think, Paris now, uh, Sebastian Salgado. He did a lot of famous work in Africa and Brazil, black and white. And uh, he's a real legend in that documentary photojournalism world. Mm-hmm. Um, he inspired me. There's been others at Nat Geo that are older that were wasn't just that they were great photographers. A guy named David Allen Harvey, he was mm-hmm. great, and he he was very good at doing Latin America and cultural stuff. And I aspired to be like that. But more that he was just so damn cool. Really? Yeah. Like how? Well, a lot of a lot of artists can be a little bit protective and territorial and he's just like hey yeah come on hang out well, you know he was very social and he believed in the community of of creatives yeah and i and i really am grateful for him for that there's a lot of others that do it as well and and uh, and i have a bunch of friends that work in the conservation outdoor world that i admire and and look at and paul nicklin is one who okay works at nat geo and he focuses on arctic terrain but these are the type of people that kind of they're not in your world, specifically, say, the Southwest, but they, they're in your creative world, and they're helpful. And um, so I look to them a lot. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And can you talk a little bit about kind of the conservation aspect of things? Because uh, I know that that's a lot of what we talked about with the, with the Grand Canyon, but specifically when it comes to water. And in my work in, in conservation, I deal a lot with water. And I think people don't fully understand you, you mentioned the plumbing system, how there are pipes all over the state pumping water back and forth one way over the Continental Divide. Can you just give, as brief as you can, because we could talk about it for hours, uh, an uh, overview of why the, Colorado, why the Colorado River peters out? 
it's um, so the the Colorado River would I think is a really interesting model because it's symbolic of what's happening in freshwater around the world in many places, mm-hmm. and it just it's right in front of us, so you can see what happens. You can see what happens when you ask too much of a of a resource; it just flat out disappears. So the Colorado River runs fifteen hundred miles roughly from Rocky Mountains to Colorado. It goes through seven states. And then ends in Mexico. So two countries, seven states. Uh, it now supports drinking water for 40 million people. When wow. I first did the project on it, it was 30 million people. Um, but back in 1922, all seven states came together and they, they had the Colorado Compact. So they made a remarkable job of agreeing on how they're going to cut up the pie of the river. And when they did it, though, they believed that the river flowed at X. And then we've had a basically a hundred years since then to realize that it doesn't flow at X. It flows at basically three quarters of X on average, but we've, we've over allocated. We have basically all these straws in a large soda when in fact we're dealing with a medium soda, but nobody wants to get rid of their water rights. And so we're, we're have to do this subtle tweak of trying to take an over allocated system and, and rejigger it. So the, that is why the Colorado river runs dry um, is we've basically just said there's more water there than there is, and so we plumbed it out to everyone. Um, and now you add a swelling population, uh, hotter and drier conditions with a changing climate. They say we're going to lose 5 to 15% of the average flow of the Colorado River due to climate changes. We see it right now. We see it this summer, the river, Roaring Fork River, which is the main upper tributary of the Colorado, is running at r- roughly 25% of its average annual f- flow. Um, downstream by the Colorado, there's another river, the Crystal. It's flowing at less than 20% of average, roughly. I went and looked at it the other day. It's just a trickle. And this has been a trend, and it's we keep calling it drought, and we're in their second decade of drought, and the question is, when does drought become... The norm. the norm, yeah. And wildfires kicked up, and everybody's feeling it being hotter and so forth. And so, what nobody realizes is that we're we have a system that's been able to sustain an overallocation um, because there, not everyone had taken their their full um, access to water because we hadn't fully developed the West. But now that we've Denver's boomed and everywhere else is booming. Suddenly, the, everyone wants their water, and it's become a critical situation. And and most of these states, they pull their drinking water right from the Colorado River. Phoenix gets 50% of its water straight from the Colorado River, and most people don't know it. I didn't know that, and I should have. And I think the problem is people, we've done such a remarkable job of engineering this thing that... Um, sadly, at the at the detriment of the delta down at the end, which used to be the largest desert estuary in North America, mm-hmm. and some people would be like, "Well, so what? Who cares about a delta at the end? That's that's a waste." But that sustains a remarkable amount of biodiversity. It also keeps the salt input from the ocean from creeping up into our soils, which ultimately is the biodiversity helps our farmlands. The salt intrusion is affects our farmlands so all this ultimately circles right back to us with our what we eat and how we live and i think people just aren't aware of how the the thin line of how close we are to water kind of catastrophic water situation is um, because their their taps work so well Mm -hmm. nothing will change until your tap doesn't work 
And that's starting to happen in places in southern Phoenix. Um, people's homes are getting, uh, their water's coming up muddy, and the only people that are getting water are those that can afford mostly big ag to, to drill deeper. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, can we figure out ways to use water better? Places like Las Vegas have because they originally, they didn't exist when they carved up the Colorado River, basically. So they've been forced by basically by shortage to be more efficient. And um, so they've paid people to tear out their front lawns, raises the question, should we even grow Kentucky bluegrass in the desert? Probably not the smartest crop. So they saved a bunch of water by tearing out lawns. They were saying conservation is our biggest reservoir. And I think that is starting to ripple all the way all the way up into the Rocky Mountains and over into Denver. There's 22 trans-basin diversion projects that take water from the Colorado River system here where we're sitting over to the, the eastern side of Colorado, which takes it into a different watershed into the Mississippi, and that never returns. So we've been playing plumbing engineer on this river for so long that we've completely changed it and really turned it into a plumbing system. And But I think we, I think we part of the challenge is how do we fix this dilemma? And I think a lot of it is people just aren't aware. Um, people are more aware of how many likes they have on Facebook than how much water they use a year. Yep. Um, on average, people use about 200 gallons of water per day in a city. And um, some cities are higher. Some have gotten it down to 150. But that's washing cars, laundry, the whole deal, shower. And most people have no concept of that. I mean, if we had little apps that showed us how much water we were using, it would probably change habits probably get competitive on some level like hey i'm using less than you and and i think what's important is water is ultimately going to define how many people can live in the southwest especially as the things get hotter Mm -hmm. and we just aren't fully aware of that we just think that um, you show up and the the hose works the sprinkler system works the faucet works all's hunky-dory and until we that starts getting dire and changing, or we get a greater public awareness to change the paradigm, it'll be things as normal until it's a crisis. Yeah, it's coming, and it's looming, and it's been looming, frankly, for quite some time now. We already have uh, Lake Mead, which is downstream behind Hoover Dam. It's at thirty-five percent, the lowest it's been since they built Hoover Dam in nineteen thirty-five. Uh, you've got Lake Powell upstream; it's less than fifty percent. Um, these get much lower. There's no way to actually run the turbines because you don't have enough head of water. So there's a lot of people that want to merge these two reservoirs. There's a lot of people that are against it because they're afraid they'll lose their water rights. So, I mean, I think if people talk and communicate and start working on this now in advance, it's, it's already late in the game. But there's ways to do it in a way where we don't end up fighting. Because the old saying is whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Mm-hmm. And we often end up fighting because we wait until it's a problem. Well, you, you got to get out of here in just a second. But if there if there's one book you could recommend about understanding water in the West for people who want to learn more, can you think? Is there one that comes to mind? Cadillac Desert. Yeah, that's the Bible. Resner's book. That was the Bible. That was one of my favorites. Um, I think Kevin Fedarko's Emerald Mile goes into I do it too. I think he covers it well, and that was another book I like. Well, man, I appreciate everything you're doing. I appreciate you talking to me. This is super fun. And, no, thanks. Uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, you too. Appreciate it. 
Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.